You're listening to the New Stack Makers, a podcast made for people who develop, deploy, and manage at scale software. For more conversations and articles, go to thenewstack.io. All right, now on with the show. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm so happy to have John Willis on the show. John, I've known you for years, and you just came out with a book. I want to talk a little bit about your book. I want to talk about topic I talked about with Adrian Cockroft because he thought he had some really good thoughts on it. It's like the idea behind, you know, what we're seeing with the real buzz right now on generative AI and LLMs. I'm curious in your perspective there. But first, tell us about John. What's John? What are you up to these days, John? You know, I, um, right now I'm, I'm just doing some freelance work. I've um, So I keep saying that I, I, every time I do a startup, I say, that's it. No more, no more. And then somehow... They creep their way back into my life. But uh, I, I, right now I'm saying no more. But um, so what I'm doing is really, uh, I'm calling it a fractional evangelist. You know, all these people doing fractional CMOs, yeah. fractional CIOs, fractional. Then why don't yeah. I be a fractional? <laughs> I'm an evangelist. That's what I do. And so I've got a couple of clients. Uh, but it, what's interesting, Alex, is you know, it's timely in your conversation with Adrian is I've, I was going to go off and say, no more startups. Let me just fill up my plate with a bunch of like clients to help them do startups. That's what I do. Right. And, um, but I've, I've really just gotten Abby. so deep in this gen of AI and in a very meaningful way that I've actually, I, I cut, I'm not taking on any clients because I want to at least spend 50% of my time researching this. This is, you know, I know we'll get into it, but I think what the experts are saying and I just sort of anybody who's paying attention the last major platform change at this magnitude was the internet. You know, it's really interesting. I love to talk about where we are right now. I mean, because I went to the VMware event, right? They call it VMware Explore now. And everything is AI, right? Like, you know, the keynote was AI this, AI that. And I kept thinking, geez, like, like where are people actually right now? Like, where are they in this path? Because I started like thinking about how would I go about reporting this story for our audience who are primarily software engineers and developers. And I thought, the only way I can do this is like, what are people doing right now? And so I went upstairs to a, to a session for spring developers learning about generative AI. And it was about the absolute basics. It was there, there was nothing advanced. They were gonna, it was a workshop. So by the end of three hours, I'm sure they were going to be doing some more advanced kind of stuff. But it then forced me to think like, when I write this story, I'm going to have to explain stuff that I wouldn't normally explain. Right. So I, I you know, yeah, yeah. so it became an education for me. So where are you in this journey? I'm curious where you are right now. Yeah, I, I think, you know, so I, I just did a presentation to hawk my book at DevOps Days Dallas uh, last week. And as it would be, somebody dropped out and they asked me if I wanted to take over a slot that dropped out. And I'm like, you know what? I've been putting together this whole idea of like how we're going to have to deal with this generative AI in the enterprise. You know, what, what are the CIOs are going to have to do? And and so um, the thing I've been really cooking on is this idea, and I, I wrote this presentation called "The Anatomy of an LLM: Anatomy of a Large Language Model." And 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 the so where I'm at is beyond all the hype, right? Like this, the 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 magic eight ball. Like when will I get married? Will I get rich? You know, like I 
you know, fun. Have fun. You know, like, yes, it's it's fun. It's like looking up your name, Googling your name 10 years ago, right? Like like that. But the real stuff is coming in like, you know, like a freight train. And, and the real stuff is where you can sort of harness this for incredibly effective tooling. And so um, the thing I've gotten to, I guess, you know, I've been very lucky in my career. Is I'll, I'll, I can see, now I, I, I often miss a lot of things I see. <laughs> I miss some big ones, uh, but I've, I've done a couple that I caught the wave right. But I, I've, in my career, I, you know, like you know, for those who don't know me, I was right. very early in on infrastructure as code. I was very early in on Docker. You know, you're early on networking. Yeah, networking for you know that whole you know the whole idea. I mean, that was you know yeah sort of how I doubled down on Docker, which was the end for. So I, you know, and I've had a whole career sort of seeing. I guess when you do this long enough, you see all the patterns, right? And and I think the big thing I see now is that the CIO, the, the, the message, I wrote an article recently called The Rise of Shadow AI, right? And the idea is that we're, we're going to see this happen all over again, just like we saw Shadow IT with cloud, cloud native. You know, people are pulling their credit cards out. And I, I think I, you know, I want to encourage the CIOs and the C-levels to say, you, you know, like this question of where does the data scientist live in? It, 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 you know, I'm sorry, it has to live under the information technology group, because we're the ones that have to protect. This is what I've been doing my whole life, right? I've been I and I know my whole life, right? And we have to protect, just like we had to do with cloud, and we had to do a lot of mopping up over ten or fifteen years to pull back all those credit cards, those data leakages. So this stuff is happening. It is, you know, if you, I, I say right now, if you've got a thirty thousand person organization, you probably have three hundred thousand Jupyter wow. notebooks sitting around right now running some form of an LLM, right? Like, the, the, you know, and, and obviously a lot of people are just running ChatGPT and there's exposures there. So so I've been thinking a lot about like, what does an architecture look like when you talk to a C-level? Okay, first, you know, don't listen to what the, I'm sorry, don't listen to what the vendors tell you because they're going to tell you to buy the one size fits all. It's like going back like 30, 40 years ago and saying, oh, don't learn how to code Java. You're not going to need it here Buy this product. And, you know, DevOps was not solved by a product. It was solved by human capital. If you look back at every successful DevOps implementation over a longer period and a sustainable implementation, it was the investment in human capital. So it is my firm belief right now, the messaging that we need to get out there to the C-level is invest in your human capital in learning how to manage this beast. Then decide what you buy, what you don't buy. But the minute you just start buying products, especially if there's going to be a landmine of just startups that are just either going to be gone in two years or going to be acquired by big companies. So now is the time to sort of roll up your sleeves in an organization. These things don't happen often. And and so just get getting to the point <laughs> is I, I think the architecture is you know, you're going to ha- want to manage your data. And so what that's going to mean is you're going to have to make a lot of choices about the data. The technology is there. Uh, you you know, they call it retrieval augmentation yeah. or RAGs. And we can get into that. Right. But, but vector databases and, and different ways to sort of train. And it's 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 different than the ML ops or AI ops. This is a different beast. Yeah, that's a good point. What is the difference? Because ML ops and AI ops emerged before 
we have pre-trained models, essentially, right? Yeah, so the, the, the biggest point, and, and, and by the way, if I'm starting to sound like I'm a data scientist, let me pre-warn everybody, I am not. I am what we would call a citizen, capital C citizen data scientist right now, right? But I'm learning fast and I'm trying to understand, you know, what my advice is going to be. The biggest difference is if you go back to before this sort of the, you know, GPT, if you will, the generative pre-trained transformers, like that's the why now moment. Right. Like and not to get too deep, but the, the magic of like taking all this technology that's been around for forever and atom smashing it together, really very loose terms, being able to work unsupervised and supervised data. But, but that's not the point. The, the difference is in the ML ops and the AOPS, and we'll be able to borrow a lot of things from there. You built an organization, built those models from scratch. Now you don't build models. They're what they call foundational models. You know, the things you get from OpenAI or GPT-3.5 or, you know, Claude 2 or Llama, you know, all these are basically pre-built. In fact, you don't really have the machines. You can't get enough NVIDIA <laughs> GPUs to do it, right? Um, so, so what you do is the real thing now is how do you sort of create a, a, an emerging phrase is LLM, LLM ops, right? So this idea that it starts with a foundational model. And then you go through this process of a life cycle of like, like ultimately you're going to build some sort of retrieval augmentation. The most popular right now, what's called vector databases. And the vector databases are basically the ability for you, and I apologize to any pure data scientists living now, is to build your vector embeddings in line with the foundational model and sort of concatenate them, that's not a data scientist phrase, concatenate them together, concatenate them together so it looks like it's your sort of model. And now your prompts will go against your data. Anything that your data is not sort of in that sort of what I would call concatenation, it would go out and find what's in the larger LLM. But it gets that nearest neighbor, that sort of graph capability. You're just building a small subset. And, and so then what that becomes, the life cycle is the foundational model exists. You don't train that. You don't set your checkpoints and evaluations on, on that big model. But what you're really trying to do now is what is the data that you're and now I, you know, my interest is the enterprise, right? So like I don't, whoever else is out there, go have a go have a party. But my interest in is like how are we going to manage incident management? How are we going to manage GRC? How are we going to manage our SOPs, our help desk, right? Or even our our secret source code or secret source documentation. So the idea is. I want to train off of possibly a foundational model, could be on-prem or off-prem. That's a whole nother discussion. But now what I need to do is make sure that the things that are getting into this retrieval augmentation, again, not the only source, but typically right now, a vector database like uh, Pinecone or Mongo or Redis, there's a whole list of really good ones, is I got to be really careful about what kind of data I'm going to go in there. So I'm going to sort of like whitelist. Let's take an example of a high-frequency trading or algo trading. Maybe they want new developers to be able to learn and use like a copilot, their own copilot version of how they code, you know, high-intensity algorithmic code or, or it's pharmaceutical or whatever. So most of that stuff might be fine to be in this localized sort of vector data store. So you get your sort of own version of a co-pilot for how do I code this? What do I do this? But there's certain like, there, you know, I've heard stories of certain like top five banks that like there's 10 people that have, you know, a couple of thousand lines of code that generate billions in revenue a year, right? 
that code probably should never make it into the copilot. But even the copilot's trouble, isn't it? No, no, because that's a whole nother. We're going to we're going to blow thirty minutes real quick. Here, but yeah, I, I, the, here's the thing, right? So, so that's the point. There's a whole cleansing. Like you take the foundational model. So this new LLM ops, which is just some word that's emerging, is about your own cleansing and structure, your own red teaming data, doing what they call like a critic. Could I actually like maybe I'm Nike and let me see if at the end of this this sort of pipeline. Could I actually get an accurate description of LeBron's contract? If that happens, something went wrong. Could I get the code that should have never made it in? Like all those kinds. Of so this is going to be the new pipeline, including how we interact with, you know, orchestration of APIs. The thing about coding, which, which sort of like, I, I think, and I'm not saying you're naive by any means, and we've known each other way too long that you know. But there's a naivety when people say, oh, well, it generates bad code or, you know, yeah, I Stack Overflow generates bad code. 50% of my coworkers in the most place will give me bad advice on code. If I Google code, so here's the thing, right? I don't trust anybody when I code, right? The, the idea now is I get this incredible feedback loop. So there's all this nonsense about like, oh, you know, don't use Copilot because it'll generate bad code. Well, I don't cut and paste other people's code from Stack Overflow. Well, I, I let, let's broaden it out a little bit because one of the topics that I think is important to discuss is what is the difference between a co-completion tool such as uh, SafeCoder from Hugging Face versus a proprietary tool that you might get from Microsoft or another company, be it or OpenAI, you know, or maybe Copilot, right? So the question then. You know, the broader question then becomes for me is what will actually provide the best level of compliance? What will provide the best level of privacy? What 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 tools out there are you going to want to use so you can optimize your queries? Right. So you can build prompts without with the giving the minimal amount of data, not just for like privacy and security purposes, but for efficiency purposes, because performance is going to be an issue. And this is where sort of the retrieval augmentation comes into play, right? You know, so, I mean, right now I could use Copilot for most things. In fact, if we think about what most organizations, like uh, take a, a large, large bank, you know, a large bank headquartered in Virginia, right? 17,000 Java coders. There's not going to be 17,000 Java coders in about two to five, you know, I'll give it two years. You know, if I'm being a little conservative, I'll say five years, right? The idea that the things that most of us do, like writing subroutines, you know, writing functions, and even the configuration management space, right? Like, you know, Terraform, all those things. You, you know, think about, you know, if I've been using, I've, co so I've coded more in the last six months than I've coded in the last 10 years. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I'll get back to, the, I, I do want to get to the sort of the, the compliance and the, the control. But the, the point is right now, the misunderstanding people have is you have to know how to code. You have to know a little bit about Terraform to use Terraform with, with, with HBA. So you have to be, I don't also you have to be an expert, but you have to understand what you're asking. And if you understand what you're asking, then these tools are incredible fast feed. You know, weeks become days, days become hours. Hours become minutes in the feedback. You're getting you know, and again, when it tells me here's no, the code, I don't go, oh, yeah. great, thanks. Yeah. Let me just slam this into some production. 
In fact, I, I, actually, I usually ask and say, well, actually, I really meant this, right? In some cases, it tells you, sorry, right? She's sorry, right? Um, so I, like, I, before I even sort of iterate out, I'm still iterating in the question part. Um, now, on the, on the sort of like, how am I making sure I'm being responsible? I think that there's, it goes back to that sort of LLM ops pipeline. Do, are you, when you're sort of building this retrieval augmentation model, are you adding some level of data governance, providence, cleansing, um, you know, some structuring? You know, can you um, do content moderation? Are you sort of red teening the data? So these are the things I think are going to get really interesting that you're not going to necessarily hear vendors tell you about. Vendors are going to say, well, just pop our product in or buy our buy our vector database and like you'll be done. You're really going to have to think about like and, and so not only ingress like ingress coming out of the foundation model, but sort of the sort of egress of like a critic, like so this idea of multiple LLMs to validate that something shouldn't be. So you've got this sort of filtering and cleansing and red teening on sort of the input of your material organization, code, licenses, SOPs, brand protection, all those things. But then you're going to have on the end this idea of what they call a sort of LM audit or LM critic, which actually could sort of test can I get this information? Can, you know, like it, it would be looking for certain things that it should never get the answer for. Does that make sense? Yeah. So retrieval augmentation model. Can you give another quick definition just so we're all reminded what we're talking about here? Yeah, I've been writing a little bit about this. There's probably more, but I, I think there's three. One, you know, the idea is that you've got the LLM, right. the foundational LLM. Let's just say it's GPT-4. But if I ask GPT-4, and like I'm going to basics about my, you know, my internal standards and procedures in my company XYZ, right? They're not going to tell me anything. So there's a couple of things I can do. One form of retrieval organization is implement function calls inside of the mechanism of this sort of the LM. So like, for example, you know, the, the simplest one I, I usually give, this is not a good company one, but like I can ask, I could set up a structure so I could do a weather API call. So I could say, I'm a tourist. What's the weather like today in Boston? What should I do as a as a tourist today in Boston? So I could set up an API call to the weather API that gets injected inside of the sort of the chaining of this thing, and then it sort of says before it gets to the LM or part of the process of the prompt the LM, it's going to say it's rainy, it's cold. Therefore, the LM is going to tell me probably it should go to a museum. But you can think about that could be like a JIRA call, right? That could be an API call to JIRA. That could be an API call to your incident management system. It could be, you know, Slack. And so that one form is sort of embedding sort of these functions as API calls, or just really any function intertwined so you can get active. That's, a, that's one form of retrieval organization. The most popular form is the vector database. Right. The vector database is where you basically load up your data. The loaders now support almost every format, like uh, transcripts, Slack, Jira. I mean, just about anything you can think of. You load that into um, basically, which is sort of a mini, as I say, you, 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 you code it in a form, what's called embeddings, which is basically the same vectorized. And you match that to the, the foundational LMUR. And so now you're asking questions against, like I said earlier, this concatenated, which that's not a 
data scientist term, um, of your sort of data with, let's say, in this case, GPT-4, but it could be any of the other ones. So when you get to that point of augmentation, at what point are you then beginning to think about fine-tuning what you're doing? So the key, there's a couple of tuning things that you want to think about there. One is, what, there's, there's, there's a couple of layers. One is, like I talked about, is making sure that you have a life cycle that ensures the right data. Like maybe, I, I, if, if it's a code example, I whitelist some of the repos. This repo should never in any circumstance, miss comma, wrong keyword, should get into the training, right? Uh, licenses should never get things like that. And then that's, that's one form of the sort of the, the life cycle is what I talked about earlier, sort of a cleansing, governance, red teaming, um, fine tuning. And then the fine tuning then is um, what, one of the things I did in my presentation in Dallas last week is like if you take a good example, I've been using my book to learn, right? So I, I took a PDF version of my book and I loaded it into a vector database. There's a bunch of strategies when you're loading data in, whether it's my book or it's transcripts from videos or it's SOPs or risk guidance. The way you have to turn that into a bedding, you have to make a lot of choices of how you chunk the data because they call it chunking. And how you chunk the data describes where the placement of that data is going to be, whether you want sentences to be broken up or not, or not, you know, like a paragraph. So you make a lot of decisions and different data types. I'm getting very technical, about, but different data types are going to require different methods for how you load it. So it's not just going to be as simple as just take all this data and load it into a data store, which you could do. You're going to find that a transcript for videos, like maybe training videos in a corporation, are going to be different from standard and procedures that have headings, you know, and you're going to want to. So there's a lot of experimentation that still is. And, yeah. And then the other question is, um, where do you want to run it? Um, you know, I, I've been building this example model where you can sort of ask the, how you build the prompts around it, the performance of the prompts. And there's an observability issue, opportunity too, performance and, and how valid, what is the efficacy of your prompt? So this is end to end your data, how it gets transcribed into the embeddings, how your prompts are going to work against those embeddings. And it, and that all becomes, you, you know, you really need to understand that if I'm writing in like standard procedures, I may want to chunk the data differently than I'm writing in just straight transcripts or data from a Slack channel. That seems like the next frontier for, or or the emerging frontier for how we think about using LLMs, for instance. This is this is what my day job is now. Is I've been building these and testing out and trying to build little sample GUIs and writing about this. But there's one other point to that, which is how you run it will make a difference. So one of the let's leave out the question of like whether you trust OpenAI, SaaS, or you know what else. Like that's that's a whole another half an hour conversation. But let's just say all things being equal, which they're not. But so then the question is. If I load in all my standard procedures or I'm loading in all my incident data, I make all these choices about how I chunk it, how I design it, what my prompts are going to be. But now the question is, can I ask like 100 questions against it, the data? And can I run it against maybe some servers running on-prem? On-prem is never really on-prem, right? But uh, some low server local, right, ever, with my own NVIDIA cards. Or do I run it on OpenAI or do I run it on sort of Llama 2 on somebody else? And then what the question, this is where this observability, observability is different. You asked earlier, what's the difference between uh, ML ops? Uh, observability takes a whole new flavor here. Because observability is now more about performance and efficacy. 
So the question then is, if I say I have four different settings for running this question against my, let's say, SOPs, one's a honking server on uh, at a, a server, okay, you know, with my own NVIDIA cards, another one's a smaller one, another one's open AI, and another one's a, a sort of a Llama 2 provided by some other service. Now what I can do is I can run those same 100 questions against all four of those, and I can set an evaluation or like a like sort of semantic test to say, does it answer effectively or does it give the same answer as the last time? And so now you can sort of percentageize. And so here's the question then. And, and you can calculate the costs, like the, what they call token costs. So now I can say if if let's say that que- those hundred questions came out at 99.7% on the on-prem and 99.6 on OpenAI, then it's probably a no-brainer not to run it on OpenAI because that's going to be at scale, it's going to be a token cost. So I think it's another area. I think there's two areas that I, I'm really interested in. One is what is the sort of the that that process of the different types of data that you're going to use in this retrieval augmentation models, what we talked about. And the second is, where are you going to run it? And I think these are things you're going to have to learn on your own. You have to put your own human capital investments, and, and it's not going to be just simple, oh, we're going to run them all in the cloud, or we're going to run a, And the cloud takes on a whole different meaning here. You know, open AI is a cloud. Right. So when you think about this, and you think about the efficacy, for instance, and you think about performance, it seems like there's a lot of work that still needs to be done for enterprises to get their data ready, even because you can do it on your own, you know, as one person. But when you're thinking about scale out, that's right, that's right. You have to and have then, a data engineering infrastructure. This is why, yeah, I think there's a there's a whole sort of you know data strategy approach, right? That you have to think about. And then again, I think that's the thing is there's the pro, there's the pro and anti hype, right? Let's get rid of those two yeah, as outliers. Right. And let's now start thinking about how are we going to use this stuff effectively in our enterprise to get competitive advantage? Because there, there is unquestionable, you know, exponential advances that you can make. More than what we've seen in cloud, more than we've seen with DevOps. And so the question now is the, the work, you know, the work, you know, you're going to have to put in the time. And so don't be blinded by vendors flashing cards and saying, buy 10 of these, get three of these. You got to roll up, in my opinion. And it's everything you're going to hear out of me for the next couple of years is roll up your sleeves, figure out how to work with these systems to make it. Don't buy the snake oil. And yeah, I think hopefully we've covered, you know, what like these are the two areas that I'm really, really going to be focused on. Yeah, these are great two areas to further explore. And, you know, I guess my you know last question is, how would you approach it if you were running a large enterprise, getting your data together just so you could start experimenting? Like, how would you approach that? It would be... I'm just curious on like what, yeah. what, what, so, what you would say to them. So I've been doing a couple of executive briefings with some, you know, the, you know, I've got a pretty good tribe from, you know, from the Gene Kim's network that I've been yeah. able to work with. So I've been getting invited in because it's sort of the DevOps guy yeah. trying to say, don't make mistakes. So, you know, but on a couple of these conversations I had is give me some of your data. Let me show you what the difference is between just pick two or three types of data that you think are going to be competitive advantage that could change the opportunity and let's play with them. And I built a couple of systems, very, very ad hoc where you can sort of build up and show the, the, you know, the, the chunks, you could show what it looks like. You can do performance and evaluation tests on the prompts and just show that like, 
oh my goodness, there is a lot to think about here. And then the other part, which I'm trying to build a lab, you know, fully lab with this other sort of part where I can say, now let's try to run a hundred sort of what we know what the answer should be against, you know, these four different models, you know, a couple on-prem, a couple on SASs, and let's do the, the evaluation price performance evaluation. So uh, those conversations have been going pretty good. I, you know, we, we haven't made, I haven't made any sort of like major breakthroughs yet, but but we're in early stages with a couple of really large corporations that are, that I, I've got their attention. So are you helping them normalize their data first? You know, what I'm doing is saying like, okay, give me like one, for example, is uh, looking at incident. So we're looking at um, a bunch of sort of like about a year's worth of incident data. Another has a bunch of sort of SOPs that they build. So those are two that I've been sort of playing with. And, I, and, and then there's some video training. So I always like to tr- contrast. So give me at least two so I can show you there are major differences in the type of data. So if I can show you an example of like two different types of data types and how that whole end to end and the decisions you have to make, you can then see, oh, wow, I need to know how to do this for all my data types. Not all data types are going to be equal. Well, John, there's about a hundred questions I'd like to ask. I mean, about version control, for example, with all this data, but I think this is a good place to stop because I, I see where you're going with this. And it's a time when you just got to try things, right? I think that's maybe just what you say to what I would say to people out there is just try things, right? You know, just give it a go, see what you can do, you know, learn, learn, you know, see what the basics are that you're not going to get yourself in trouble and give it a go. And, and, and probably the most important thing is invest in understanding. Don't let this thing get, you know, don't, I mean, there's companies now I've talked to like, they're, you know, all the DCIOs are saying we're putting a ban on GPT, right? Like that's, we know how that, (laughs) we know how that plays. You you know, like, I think the question now is get a handle on this, you know, and start coordinating how you want to train and understand how you're going to do this. Don't just like ignore it. You can't ignore it. Right. And so you have to do is, and this is why I think the CIOs are like the messaging out there is very confusing for them right now. Oh, data science shouldn't be part of the CIO. It should be. No, they need to get a hold of this. You need to figure this is a DevOps redo. If you uh, look at the patterns of DevOps, they like the ones, the people that invested early, some of the phenomenal banks that like that they came out like unbelievably successful by using a DevOps methodology, they invested very early in the human capital, the consolidation, the sort of let's get everybody on the same page. Let's run internal, you know, uh, DevOps days. Let's do it. This is the way this has to be treated. Just don't let it sort of happen on its own. Just, I have to ask this last question. How, what do you mean by DevOps redo? So it goes back to the thing. If you, if we look at the success, the companies that have been successful by using sort of the predominant, patterns of DevOps. They were all companies that early on tried to get a handle on it. Try oh, okay. to get so learn from to, so learn from those banks back in the yeah, day yeah, yeah, yeah. and redo that and just follow that playbook. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Gotta be careful there. It's not a DevOps redo. It's the playbook of how if we look at the successful DevOps you know implementations, they were all companies that sort of got from leadership, put their hands around this thing, said let's target, great example. Target very early in at the executive level bought into this thing DevOps. And, and it, it was a game changer for them for many years. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. It's, uh, it's good to catch up. You know, hopefully maybe we'll have to get a discussion with Adrian and a few others uh, later That'd on. That would be great. 
and uh, talk about these uh, talk about these things. But uh, I'm here with John Willis. John, give us a little pitch for your book. Yeah, so uh, ten years I've been writing this book. It's about um, one of the most interesting guys that you probably never heard of, Doctor Deming. It, and so there's been a fair amount of books written about. He's you know he, probably anybody who's took an industrial engineering or supply chain degree would would have heard of him. He's probably most famous for being credited with changing um, after World War II Japan. But there's so much more to this. He's I would say he's like an intelligent Forrest Gump. And but one of the things I tried to do is write. And, and I'm not saying I'm Michael Lewis or Bill Bryson, but I tried to write a book about this guy in the format, the way they tell stories. It was a story. Um, Most good. of the books about Dr. Deming are like, here's a little bit about his bio and let me tell you all about his methodologies. Okay. I found there were so many fascinating, just Forrest Gumpian like stories in his narrative that got to teach you his things, yeah. but also did it in a way that let, you know, hopefully most people, have enjoyed so far sort of a Bill Bryson-ish or uh, Michael Lewis-like format. Awesome. All right, John. Well, I look forward to talking soon. Uh, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Thanks, Alex. You take care. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of the best ways you can help us grow this community, and we really appreciate your feedback. You can find the full video version of this episode on YouTube. Search for The New Stack and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any new videos. Thanks for joining us and see you soon.